You are listening to the To and Out CFL Podcast, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. Grab some poutine and a double-double. It's time for the To and Out CFL Podcast. He's got it! Oh, baby! Every week, Travis Kura. That's Greg Cupney, which is a different person. And Brazilian Tide. Hunters are people, too. Talk fantasy football, bring you the latest in CFL news, and sprinkle in a little bit of nonsense. Oh, nearly intercepted it is! And it's over! Ready, set, hunt! And joining the Two and Out CFL podcast now is second generation CFL player, 1993 Grey Cup champion, Jed Roberts. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's the 30th anniversary of that 30th or that uh, 93 Grey Cup season. So I'd like to relive some memories today. Oh, man. Happy to be here. It's, uh, that was a fun year. So it's always, I've always got time to tell stories about that group. I, uh, I, I guess the first one to ask you, it, it kind of does seem like the alumni for the Edmonton Football Club are one of the proudest groups, I think, across the league. And for, I mean, great reason, <laughs> great success yeah. together. Um, but uh, lately, it, it's been a little tough. And I, I just noticed that Matt Dunnigan on a broadcast, uh, he, he said that it, it's starting to become a little personal. Uh, with the struggles that have gone on. And I know you're an optimistic, positive guy. Is is there sort of a, a feeling of disappointment with the alumni as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, our expectations are, I mean, you said kind of to lead off this segment there, you know, the, the, the pride among the group, you know, is well, well earned because, you know, we, we were pretty fortunate, um, over the years to have a lot of success as a group, you know, um, I kind of came in at the tail end. I played with some of those five in a row guys, you know, like Kangalisic, uh, Rod was there. Um, and you know, that the, the stuff that they, they passed down to us, we passed down to guys like Ricky Ray and Singor Mobley and AJ gas. Right. And then so on and so forth. But it just seems like, you know, recently in the last, maybe, I don't know, probably since 2007, it's been kind of, you know, things have sort of, for whatever reason, there's been sort of a tailspin in the franchise. And with the exception of 2015, you know, when they won that, uh, that they went on that that run, and you know, Mike Riley carried the team on his shoulders, and they had that really great defense with Chris Jones. I think that there was a lot of reason for optimism when Chris came in because you know he did have success here before, and so I don't know. It's just a confluence of a whole bunch of really unfortunate things that have come together, kind of lead us to where we are right now. And you know, and, I, and you are right. I'm an optimistic guy, but when you get shut out twice and you don't make it into the red zone, two straight games against two straight guys, against the same team, it's it's kind of tough to see the silver lining and everything. And you know, when when people are talking about you know things aren't changing and they're not doing anything different, and that's that's really tough to you know kind of. Uh, defend so it was nice to see today when they when they made the change that they did with bringing uh, Jarius in there to well he was already there but yeah uh you know to kind of put him in a position where he can be up in the booth and and to mentor the quarterbacks and you know try to have a a little bit of a different approach so hopefully something something different comes out of it so were you ever on a team that struggled like yeah we maybe not to this level but still struggled well, you know, six and twelve in nineteen ninety nine, we were. If it wasn't for Saskatchewan, we don't make yeah. the playoffs that year. You know, we yeah, beat them three yeah. times. So thanks, thanks Saskatchewan. But um, <laughs> we, 
you know, and they were in the boat that we are in right now. Right. You know, and, and uh, I have to kind of remind people that, you know what, as bad as things are here, you know, there were other franchises around like Ottawa and Saskatchewan that went through this for 25, 30 years, you know, yeah. and, uh, but yeah, you know, the expectations have always been really high around these parts and, and, uh, it's, it's tough, but you know, every, every franchise goes through it. So it's at one time point or another, and it's, yeah, I guess it's our turn, but hopefully they can turn it around. Now I'm looking back on the 93 season and I even go to the off season because there was a remarkable trade that kind of set things in motion with Edmonton drafting Mike O'Shea and then promptly trading him to Hamilton along Well, they, they trade O'Shea with a linebacker, a quarterback and a nagless player, but that brings back. Damon Allen. It kind of feels like one of those trades that worked for both teams. O'Shea got most outstanding rookie. Obviously, Damon Allen is Damon Allen and ended up winning the Grey Cup that year, and that's what everybody sets out to do at the beginning of the season. But that's one of those... I'm just mind-blown about that trade. Like Damon Allen coming in must have been big, obviously, at the beginning of 93. Yeah, I remember I was driving down the road and I had just gotten a cell phone. And one of the first phone calls I ever made with my cell phone, it was a Nokia, you know, those red ones. And I called my teammate, Trent Brown, and, uh, you know, we just got Damon Allen because I heard it on the radio and we were just really excited. But it wasn't just that trade. I, I said to him at that point, Trent, I said to my teammate, I said, we just won the Great Cup. And we were both kind of like, because the year before, you know, we were struggling. Uh, with Tracy, Tracy was having a really hard time throwing to the wideouts. He would only lock in on the slots, right? And we didn't really have the the running game at that point because we were running with an all Canadian backfield that was kind of a smash them out, pound them out, grind them out type. But we didn't have a breakaway runaway runner, runner because Reggie Taylor didn't come back. So you know he was a really good back. I think he rushed for fifteen hundred yards. I think in ninety one, and then he didn't come back for ninety two. And we had a couple of Americans that we brought in and auditioned but got rid of very quickly, Mike Pringle being among them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so we, we had a little bit of, uh, there was a little bit of consternation and we it just felt like, you know, we, we went out and we picked up Lucius Floyd, mm-hmm. um, which kind of gave us a little bit more of an added dimension to be able to throw to him because he was a guy that was catching a lot of passes out of the backfield in Saskatchewan before he came to us. And uh, not only that, but it was the six for six trade that where we sent oh. Craig Ellis and, and a host of others over to Toronto for uh, Bruce Dixon, J.P. Escuero, Leonard Johnson. Um, you know, we got a whole bunch of uh, guys that came in and were impact players. Donnie Wilson. Uh, I think Reggie Pleasant was in there. Uh, man, like Ed Berry. Like, it was an amazing trade. All of we those don't guys. See trades like that anymore. Like, no. <laughs> that's no. wild. And, and I, I remember looking at that going, what is Toronto thinking? Right? Like, they just basically sent all of their best players to us for – Craig Ellis, who was kind of on the tail end of his career. I think we got DK Smith out of it too. So yeah, it was wild. It was a wild trade. And uh, so on the one hand, you know, you got a lot of turnover because you got all these new guys Mm. coming in and we had to figure out how to kind of put everybody in their roles. But that's kind of what we always sort of did. We would always reload. We never rebuilt. And uh, we were never a team that was really known for that rebuilding. We just sort of kind of brought in another lineup and said, okay, we're going to kick your butt again this year. Right. So uh, I really get too familiar with rebuilding until I got to 98 when we had David Archer as a quarterback and Cave Stevenson as the coach. And then 99 when we brought in Don Matthews and we went 6-12. and 12. So I was spoiled. I never missed the playoffs the entire time I was here. You know, my 13-year career, I never 
came close in 99, but, you know, we were always in the playoffs and I could always budget for, you know, I'm going to have oh. extra money in the playoff time, right? Yeah. So just, you don't get, you know, your playoff money isn't guaranteed. If you don't make the playoffs, you don't get paid, right? So uh, that was just, uh, you know, we just took it for granted. We always had a home playoff game and yeah. we always had extra money come playoff time. So it's different for sure. So how's that playing under the little general, uh, Ron Lancaster? I mean, is that big for getting all of those new guys gelling during training camp going into the season? Yeah, and Ronnie was a guy that uh, he was known for bringing in his guys and then letting mm -hmm. them play together, you know. And so what we did was we had this core group of guys that came in kind of all together around 93, and we all played together for about five, six years. And then and it just seemed like we sort of aged overnight. And then that's kind of what happened in 99. We had all mm -hmm. these veteran guys. And, you know, Benny went to Winnipeg. and uh, We lost, um, you know, Larry retired, Larry Ruck. And, you know, we just lost. All, LeBron was gone. You know, it just got – and that happens, right? You know, you, you see the women's soccer team yesterday. You know, they're just – they're getting a little long in the teeth, right? And, and it's you got to replace those people you have to have a succession plan in place and ronnie was great you know once he got his guys and you were one of his guys you were good but there wasn't a lot of turnover from one year to the other right so and uh we didn't really have a succession planning in place for quarterback when Don, when danny left with ronnie and after the 97 season went to hamilton and took darren blue with him we weren't really left with anything so um mm. cody ledbetter our backup quarterback went too so <laughs> we didn't really that's didn't really right. have much to work with, right? So they brought uh, David Archer in, and we went nine and nine, and we were mad about that. We were like, "Oh, this is unacceptable!" And little did we know, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> now, I uh, I look at that first game you play in Toronto, and you crush him by thirty in the home opener. It's thirty-eight to eight, and I, I just wonder now when there's a Grey Cup team. Like, is there something, and you had said it on the cell phone, the Nokia, that, hey, we just won the Grey Cup. Is there a special feeling right from the get-go once you show up to the facility on the first day? Well, we knew we had the pieces, you know, and, mm -hmm. and the, getting everybody together. And that's one of the benefits of having a strong culture as an organization. I think you see that in Calgary, you know, Calgary has been able to kind of keep, and their alumni is really good at kind of taking care of the guys when they're done playing. And so people want to play in those places. And we had that here. We had, everybody was pretty well established in their careers. Like I think our entire offensive line had probably paid, paid their houses off while they were playing, you know, oh, and they wow. were, they had, they, we would, they would work their regular careers and then we would reschedule practices around our, our day jobs, you know, and uh, we would come in and we start practice at 3 p.m. So people would be working nine or whatever, and then they come in after their their day jobs were done, and then they go to practice, and that was just the way it was. You don't do that anymore now. It's more of a all day thing with you know the guys kind of play on their playstations and stuff like that. Now <laughs> back then we didn't really do that. You know, it was a Canadian dominated roster, and uh, you're really seeing sort of the dis disappearance slowly, the the erosion of the Canadian content in the league. And, you know, they call them nationals now. And, um, you know, it's 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 just change. You know, so one thing you can count on is things changing, right? So it was just a different approach to uh, practice and, and, uh, and, and life back then. You know, it was more about, you know, there was more emphasis on making sure that you were established off the field. And that football was just kind of something that you did when you weren't working your regular job. Now it's quite a bit different. It's more of the emphasis on this is your job. 
if you have time to do anything else and schedule that around it, we're not going to work around you anymore. So, um, but that team was really cool because we had uh, a bunch of really talented people come in and just sort of, uh, and, and we had a couple of guys that Damon had been there before. He knew all about mm-hmm. what it was to be, be, be part of that organization. And, you know, we had Reggie and, and Don came in and Ed Berry, those guys all, you know, they were very professional and they were really good at, uh, you know, what they did. And they just, we just didn't really miss a beat. And Rick Stubler, our defensive coordinator was a guy that, you know, he, he was just amazing in terms of like, he was doing things like Bill Belichick had uh, mm. was running match coverage back then, back with the uh, I think it was the Cleveland Browns, and uh, Rich kind of picked that up in the off season. He brought it in and he we worked it as a change of pace thing because the the big team back then they had picked up Doug Flutie and uh, we had to figure out a way to kind of slow him down because they had a tendency of Stampeders to line up really wide on their offensive line. They had like three foot splits, which is unheard of. You don't wow. see that anymore. And uh, what they were trying to do was create running lanes for Doug Flutie. And so what we started to do is we would play uh, a kind of a, a, a zone, but it looked like man. And so we would run with guys and then drop off into our zones. And uh, we'd give Flutie a little bit of a, a bit because he couldn't understand what we were trying to do. The next year, what they did was they started running double moves. And then that's why they used to beat the crap out of us in Labor Day because they'd have these little adjustments that they would do. But uh, I'm kind of digressing. But we beat Calgary that year three times out of four. And uh, nobody else could. They, they won their 15 games and lost three. And uh, uh, we beat them twice in the regular season and once in the playoffs. And uh, the only team that we really couldn't seem to beat was Winnipeg. Winnipeg used to run this. Uh, throwback scheme where Matt Dunnigan would set up behind the tackle and then he would throw back on the backside post or whatever. And he had the arm that he could throw that backside corner. Mm-hmm. And we had a rookie uh, safety at that point or a, a very young safety, Dan Murphy, who would really bite on the first, uh, like if Dunnigan would look him off, he would go running on full speed, 20 yards and leave the middle wide open. And you saw the results of that the year after in 94 when they threw for 713 yards against us because they were so angry with us for winning the Great Cup. But I'll take my <laughs> ring over 713 yep. yards passing any day. But it was an interesting year because we couldn't beat Winnipeg. And so we went into the playoffs in the Great Cup. Winnipeg was pretty confident they were going to beat us, even with their backup quarterback, Sammy wow. Garzik. Yeah. Because Matt Dunnigan uh, ruptured his Achilles at the end of the season. And they uh, they still managed to beat, you know, who they needed to beat in the playoffs to get into the, the Grey Cup. And I think they were pretty supremely competent. If you ever watched the pregame introductions, the Blue Bombers players walked when they did the introductions wow. because they were so mad. They thought they were being disrespected all week because everybody was saying that we were going to beat them handily because their backup quarterback was playing. Right. And they were really angry. And they actually even meet, managed to make it a game. You know, if David Williams catches that pass at the end of the game, I don't know if we're, you know, and I think, and I've always said, I've been very honest, if Matt Dunningham would have played that day, I'm not sure how well we would have done because we just had a real hard time playing against that scheme because uh, of some of our uh, positional uh, weaknesses in that at that point. I think as time went on and we went away from Dan Murphy and we started playing the Trent Brown, we weren't that susceptible to that backside stuff because Trent wouldn't get looked off so easily. Mm-hmm. But uh it was a great group, you know. We we were really strong at what we did, and uh, when when we played Calgary, we seemed to match up really well with them, and nobody else could figure them out. But we did that one year, just for one year, we figured Calgary out. So it was pretty cool to win down in Calgary. That was really special. We put 
Edmonton Eskimo stickers up in the box, tops of their lockers. Uh, that was, that didn't go over too well. That's one of the other reasons why they, they started coming out wearing black on Labor Day. And, uh, oh. you know, they just would beat us like we stole money from them, which we kind of did if you really look at it. So. <laughs> I find it interesting. You kind of bring up the work football balance, you know, yeah. the work life yeah. balance. And because since, 2020 it feels like the rest of the world has kind of prioritized you know life a little bit more than work Mm -hmm. but it seems like pro sports has kind of gone the opposite way i even think about baseball it's like guys are you know chewing tobacco in the dugout like things have just completely changed um but football it's I find it interesting because everybody kind of looks at that era of CFL football thinking it's the most exciting brand of football ever. And now fans attribute maybe some of the more defensive battles to being, oh, there's less practice time. There's less all this. But it seems like that didn't bother you guys in the early 90s at that time. No, we... uh... You know, we just, we knew it was a fun, it was game, you know, we knew mm. it and we just, we always came. And the other thing about having the group of guys that we had was that we had, we knew when to have fun, but we also knew when it was time to work, you know, and we didn't need to be told to do that. You know, we would, uh, we were really, really like, we all complimented each other. And I'm looking, I'm thinking specifically on defense, you know, we had that Leroy Blue, we had Leroy, Larry Rock, yeah. we had, uh, uh, Trent Brown, we had, uh, you know, nose guard that year. It was Tony Woods, who's since passed away. I played with Tony, actually. I played against him in high school in Colorado Springs. Uh, so I was really, like, it was uh, a thrill for me to play with him because he was one of my idols, actually. I looked up to him. He was a year or two ahead of me. Um, you know, we had uh, Malvin Hunter. It was his rookie year. Came in from the U.S. Or sorry, the uh, World League of American Football the year before. Um, Errol Martin, it was his rookie year. Um, you know, we just had so much talent. Like yeah. Errol Martin could run a four three forty, and he was playing defensive end. You know, and, wow. And he wasn't even starting. So we had so much talent. You know, and I think people don't understand how talented Leroy Blue was. He was a strong side rush in, and he would regularly take on two or three guys, <laughs> and that would just leave room for Willie Plus to roam. And you know, when Willie's not being touched, he's there was nobody better. I have always said that Willie was the best sideline to sideline linebacker I've ever seen you know he just was always around the ball and was always making plays and recovering fumbles and you know knocking people around it was just a fun group to play with you know and then off the field they were very very funny you know we had Gizmo Williams who's probably to this day the funniest person I've ever known you know and he would do things off the off the practice field that or even in the meeting rooms, or even on the planes, he would take over the uh, intercom and, and just start talking, and he would run like a, a ten or fifteen minute routine, which was wow. wouldn't be out of place on any you know the Showtime at the Apollo or whatever. He was like as as far as you know impromptu uh, improv stuff. He was amazing. He could he could make anything. You know, we would be sitting there trying to kill time, and he would just go on like a twenty minute bit, and we would all. I would ask him to just stop talking. <laughs> because I couldn't breathe. I was laughing so hard. He uh, had quite – did he have a temper? Like, I hear some of the stories yeah. that <laughs> – Yeah, he did. He had quite a temper. Actually, in 98, he got really mad at uh, – and I can't – I think it was because Kay Stevenson wasn't playing him. And oh, okay. uh, he got really – I was towards, toward kind of the end of his career. And he got really angry at Leroy one day in the locker room, and I'm not sure what – what prompted it, but he actually brought a gun to practice one day Whoa. in his car and he actually went out to his car to get it 
and we went, me and Leroy chased him and we convinced him not to bring that gun into the locker room. So people will never know, you know, and I mean, I, the half the stuff that happened was unbelievable. Like I try to tell these stories to people like, what, really? I'm like, yeah, man, like you have no idea. <laughs> You know, it's just like any family. Sometimes yeah, people are, yeah. you know, people fight, people argue, people, you know, That's and you true. have a good time. But but we all loved each other. So it was always, you know, we always, you know, hugged and made up after. But boy, it got pretty heated sometimes. <laughs> now, I look <laughs> at the Labor Day rivalry that you had with Calgary. And I, I even almost compare it to Hamilton in Toronto. It feels like Hamilton and Edmonton are bring the lunch pail to work day, work hard, go home, have big steak and potatoes, and that's it. Toronto and Calgary are like the executives, you know, telling yeah. people what to do, the flash, the, you know. And did did you take that to heart? I mean, Doug Flutie and the Stamps, they, they're, they're crushing everyone. They're high-flying kind of thing. But you just put the hard work in and beat them, like you said, three times. Yeah, that year we did. You know, we struggled. Yeah. With, you know, yeah. I know because when I got there in 90, 90 and 91, I think we won on Labor Day. And then that was when Wally came in. And he did a really good job of shifting that whole mentality around that franchise and, and telling them, you know what, you're not the little brother anymore. You're, you're mm-hmm. the big brother. And, you know, when they got uh, Flutie, that really, you know, it just kind of went from there. And then they just seem to always have somebody waiting in the wings, which is what great teams do, you know, and that's something that talked about earlier about how Ronnie didn't really have a plan B. He just kind of left. Right. And so okay. uh, that's one of the reasons why we're having such a hard team now with the Edmonton franchise is that there just isn't really thought to like what's going to happen next year. And they're just kind of just making it up as they go along. And I think the good, good organizations like Calgary. And I think even in Edmonton in those days, we always had a plan for tomorrow, you know, the stabilization fund and, you know, all these other things, but yeah. uh, playing Calgary, it was just uh, when we would go down there, it was just the people there would always like when we would go out and it was like, do you really think you can beat Calgary? And I'm like, not only do I think we can beat them, I think we're, we're going to beat them and we're going to win the great cup. And you're like, oh, you're crazy, you know? And so it's always good fun. And, and uh, we, we were committed, you know, we made a commitment to doing and playing together in a way that would, you know, counter what Flutie was trying to do that particular year anyway. And, you know, it was just uh, for me as a kid growing up playing football in the U.S., you know, and watching Flutie's uh, immaculate, uh, yeah. you know, the Hail Mary throw. And, you know, I was just starry eyed, you know, and I actually that year in 93, I had 10 sacks. And then my 10th sack was against Doug Flutie on my birthday at home in, uh, on November 10th. And so what a birthday present. That whole year was just uh, one incredible, like, you know, and I actually, that year, they had the tragically hip came, and uh, Bruce Dixon was friends with the guy that was running the security, and they, they were playing at Clark Park, and we all, Trent Brown and I, and Bruce Dixon and a bunch of us were dancing with our shirts off in the front row in the VIP tent to New Orleans is sinking, and it was raining, and it was amazing, and we, because we just really liked each other off the field, and we were friends, and you know, and not every team does that, you know, yeah. like a lot of teams, guys just show up, they practice and then they go. But that's one of the reasons why it's good to have the same group. You have some carryover, some continuity, and, you know, you get to know each other and, you know, your families become friends. And and that was certainly the case. Like Trent and I played together for 10 years and uh, we just, you know, even to this day, we're really close friends. And um, that's one of the things like when people ask me, do you miss playing football? I mean, do you miss being, you know, a great cup team? And I'm like, not really. I miss the relationships. I miss the fun and the, and let's, and watching Gizmo run naked across the stage during <laughs> training camp. 
<laughs> while coach is trying to give his like his opening speech. But other than that, I don't miss the physical aches and yeah. pains and the bruises and the and the pressure. You know, the the mental stuff. It's it's a grind. It's tough, but. Uh, you know, it's somebody else's turn, and I really enjoy watching the game and following along. And I'm a fan just like everybody else, and I get upset when they lose, and I, I, I get um, depressed when they're not doing well and, you know, and take it personally and stuff. I probably shouldn't, but uh, I do. <laughs> now, uh, is it is it cool even now? They, they, they honored the 93 team early this season at Commonwealth. Seeing those guys that maybe you haven't seen for – decades is it almost like an old friend where you just pick up right where you left off oh oh absolutely um michelle bourgeau who was our long snapper that year and was on the tail end of his career that was his last year he was a uh, first round former first round draft pick in ottawa and uh, he'd spent most of his career there and then he came over i think just prior to 89 and he was part of that 16 and two football team and and uh he was a mentor to me and he was also hearing impaired so Mm. Our equipment guy, Dwayne Mandrusiak, in his infinite wisdom, decided to partner up the two hearing impaired guys. And we missed every wake up call that year. <laughs> <laughs> and so Roddy was like, Why do they keep showing up late? And I'm like, Because we're deaf, coach. Like, whose bright idea was that? Right? So they, they split us up after that. But uh, when Michelle came out, it was really nice to see him. We went for breakfast over at the Chateau Lacombe and uh, we, t- we told that story. We told a whole bunch of uh, just wonderful. It's just really nice. And you're right. You just kind of pick right up where you left off. Yeah. Uh, when you go through things like that, when you play at that level, um, and it's like that. It's, I'm, I'm sure, you know, when you play high school sports, you, you get that too, you know. And then high school yeah. was kind of the last level I played where you just play because you love it. But mm. I was that kid was just so so deeply in love with the game that I just uh, – I was always um, – I always considered myself fortunate to be able to play a, a, a boys game for a living. And uh, Michelle had that approach too. Michelle used to really piss the old line off because he would always go really, really hard. Even when it was the day before a game and nobody had any pads on, he was going full speed and he was always like, trying to tackle the quarterback. And uh, the old lineman used to try to fight him because he was just like, chill out, you know. And, and Michelle's like, I only know one speed, man. Besides, I can't hear you. And him and I would have a really good time with that. But, uh, you know, it's the personalities, it's, it's the funny stories and stuff. That's what I miss the most. I, I got to ask you, how were those two trips to Sacramento that year? Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> so Trent and I, we, uh, I, it's, it's, it's been thirty years. I can tell this story. We we went down to San Francisco actually the night before the game, and we stayed up all night long. We didn't get any sleep. We went out because Doug Parrish was from San Francisco, and he was our defensive back. And so Doug was like, yo, man, I want to take you back to my hood, and I want to show you where I come from. So we went to San Francisco, and we were we drove up into Oakland, and I remember. I think the game was a was an afternoon game, and I'm pretty sure that at six or seven o'clock in the morning, Trent was freestyling on the street corner <laughs> in Oakland, and we were the only people that weren't of color and for miles around. And uh, I look back now, and I'm going, "What were we doing?" Today? <laughs> and so we we managed to get back to uh, Sacramento and on no sleep. And we actually, I had a sack and then Trent wasn't supposed to play, but somebody got hurt. He ended up playing the whole game and we were wow. both exhausted, but we won the game. <laughs> so, uh, we both, I think we went straight to bed right after. 
I, let's let's just go to the playoffs here. <laughs> you did earn a home playoff game. I mean, I've been to Oakland. I, I went to a Raider game. I I can picture this in my head, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the playoffs. You earn the home playoff game and crush Saskatchewan fifty-one thirteen. And if you look back on the season, well, they beat you by one in week two. And then you beat them 35-3 in week three, and then the playoffs happen. What do you remember about that home uh, semifinal? I remember I remember um, one of the things I really liked about Rich Stubler is that when we would start our day one and he would give us our scouting plans, and, you know, this was when we used to kill a lot of trees and have everything on paper. <laughs> you know, now it's all on iPads and stuff, but... Uh, back then, it was all done the old school way, and those guys would kind of go through and meticulously do it by hand, you know, all the tendencies and stuff. And his first speech would always be about who we were facing that week and, and psychologically what that quarterback was like. And he was amazing and that he could get in that quarterback's head and he could tell you, you know, what are the things that this quarterback likes to do? What are the things that this quarterback, what makes him strong? What makes him weak? And one of the things he used to always say about Ken Austin was um, – and I don't know if this is him personally, but I know that his style of play was that he used to said that Ken Austin was a selfish player and that he was mm-hmm. only like you could look in the waning minutes of a game and he's throwing a dump off to his back and they're down by 30, you know, and he's got guys open downfield, but he's he's trying to get his completions. Oh. And so uh, Stubler was convinced that, you know, he was a guy that couldn't throw downfield that well. Uh, and then if you could, like, defend everything deep and, and react up, that sooner or later those guys would make a mistake. And as luck would have it, I think early in that game, uh, I think Fairholm uh, got hit by Larry Ruck. And he was kind of like their, you know, they had their really good slot backs there, uh, Elgard and Fairholm. And Fairholm was their one deep guy. You know, Narcisse was more of a possession guy. But Fairholm had some speed. And when he got out, he got hit. and he, I think he tore his hamstring. You know, that was pretty much it for them. They weren't going to really do anything downfield, and they couldn't really run the ball against us. So, you know, that game wasn't very tough. We just sort of figured that we were going to win that game going in anyway because I think Rich had sort of figured out Ken Austin as a quarterback. Uh, postscript to that, a couple of years down the road when uh, BC, I think it was 94, BC was using Ken Austin and Danny McManus. It was hard because we knew that De- that Ken Austin couldn't beat us by throwing downfield, but McManus could. And so we had to play two different styles of defense, and then it was tough, so I'm digressing. But uh, that was kind of how uh, Rich Stubler was always the guy that would give you insight into, like, where how this guy was preparing for us. And we had to learn the offense. We had to learn how they blocked everything, and we had to learn wow. what they were doing out of whatever formations and stuff. And so, I mean, I, it's one of the other things I missed was, was the knowledge that they gained by just listening to this man talk. He was brilliant. Now, it's kind of interesting because to win the Grey Cup, you didn't have to leave (laughs) Alberta again. (laughs) You go to Calgary for that West Final. And even now, I hear sometimes it's brought up that maybe that bye week in the semifinal isn't always the best spot to be for that first place team. It happened to Edmonton in 89. You mentioned the 16-2 and team. And, well, the Stampeders here... 15 and three and you go in and uh, beat them by two touchdowns. Was it the, maybe the Labor Day win that gave you that belief you're going to go in and take down the first place Stampeders who, who want to play in their own stadium for the great cup, but you robbed them of that. 
Yeah, we were generating a fair bit of momentum. You know, we, we kind of went in there because we had beaten uh, Calgary the last regular season game of the season at home. Yeah. And it was snowing. And uh, and this isn't the case now, obviously, because Flutie uh, managed to beat us in the 96 Grey Cup. But he had a bit of a reputation for, you know, not being a, a cold-weather guy, which is ridiculous because he's from Boston, which is, <laughs> like, colder than it is here, really, if you're being honest, because there's yeah. moisture. But... Um, but that was the perception. And uh, that day, that Western final, it was a hellacious storm. And uh, I, I still maintain to this day, it was the coldest game I've ever played in. It was wow. very, it was, or, or the wind was coming in at whatever, 60 kilometers an hour. And it was very difficult to get anything done. Uh, the, the heaters were freezing up on the sidelines. It was just a miserable day. Um, but, you know, we had uh, Sandusky and Jay Christensen who both kind of went off that day, and, you know, and, and Damon, that's when we were doing that Sally Rand where he would bake the handoff and kind of hide the ball on his hip and, and you couldn't tell if he had it or not, if mm -hmm. the running back had it. So it was very difficult for the backside linebacker. You, know, you would freeze him and all you needed to do was make him stop and Damon had you. And so uh, we rode that wave and, and uh, Damon just played that off to perfection for those two or three weeks that we needed him to. And then the rest is history, you know, and Calgary just didn't have an answer. And I think that we were a little bit overconfident. I had heard that, uh, Sapungis had, uh, gotten 35 tickets or something for people. And we got wind of that and we got pretty upset because you know, he had already given them out, you know, basically guaranteeing everybody that they were going to be in the great cup. When we took great cup one. tickets. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So was, is that a thing? Billboard material, even maybe that's not, you know, there was a, I don't think that would have made the paper, but even that little word of mouth thing that you hear that you're that confident, well, we're going to show you. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's the other thing that's really cool is that it's an insular league and that everybody kind of plays, you know, at least the CIS guys, especially back east. You know, Sabunch was from Western Ontario. We had uh, uh, Dumeresk who, who played with him and and uh, and uh, Pierre, I think, had left by then, but uh, – we had guys that all kind of knew each other, right? And so there was a lot of word of mouth. It wasn't as much, you know, the media and stuff like that because it's totally different beast now with social media and, and yeah. phones, cell phones and stuff. But back then it was more about like everybody kind of knew each other, right? So um, people were talking and, you know, that's kind of where we would sit there in, in meetings and those conversations would start to, you know, it was organically sort of a thing that kind of took on a life of its own and, we just uh, decided collectively as a group that we were going to take that personally, and the results spoke, spoke for themselves, I guess. Now, the Grey Cup, I, I, I see over 50,000 people at McMahon Stadium for that one, and I'm trying to r imagine now 50,000 in McMahon and the logistical nightmare it is to be in the stands. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. But nobody told me that they were going to bring the Snowbirds, right? So I'm oh, sitting wow. there at the National Anthem, and I'm – hearing impaired i can't hear anything so i just tell whoever's standing next to me just tap me when they're done right and then all of a sudden i hear the earth shaking and i think there's an earthquake and i'm like i just about wet myself <laughs> the stadium's crumbling like, just relax he's just the snowbirds and i'm like well who, why, when, when, whose idea was that you know, i just about lost my mind right so what was the preparation like that week was it fun were you all dialed in or were you yeah loose? you know what you know, the first thing I remember is um, we went, you know, you obviously go down, I think it's Tuesday, and then your first practice is probably Tuesday at home, and then you fly out and you go, and mm -hmm. we, in this case, we drove, obviously. 
And uh, we went to an event, and I will never forget this for as long as I live, but we walked into a tent, and there was maybe 10 people in there, and everybody was wearing cowboy hats and stuff, but I, I don't know if they were setting up. It was just a fluke, and there was a guy playing guitar. It was Colin James. And wow. I'm standing there, just me and him, and I, and he's like, well, what do you want to hear? And I'm like, well, and I told him, and, and I asked him if he knew how to play any Eric Johnson, or you know, because like, I was, you know, I like the clips of Dover and all that, so he played that for me, and, uh, and I was just like, Wow, I was pinching myself. This is incredible, right? So, and that whole week was like that, right? The Grey Cup is just an amazing experience, you know. And it's one thing to take it in as a player, but it's a completely different animal as a as a as somebody that's not participating. And you know, I've been lucky enough to I got to participate in four Grey Cups in ninety, mm-hmm. ninety three, ninety six, and two thousand and two. But and I played in two. Uh, but yeah, that was my first memory, and 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 it got just got better from there. You know, like there was just a, an aura, like a mystique. And, or, and it's just an, an amazing experience. And prep was, I don't really even remember the practices, to be honest with you. It's wow. the same with the 96 Great Cup. You know, I just remember it being unusually, unseasonably warm. And uh, the game, I think it was plus two, plus three. Chinook. And there was a bit of a Chinook <laughs> run. Yeah. And I remember Bob Cameron and Glenn Harper just booming punts in the pre- uh, pregame. I think Glenn actually averaged around 46 yards of punt that wow. game. It's one of the highest averages ever in a Great Cup. So. It was fun, you know. As uh, I actually both Grey Cups I played in, I didn't really do anything. I just I don't mm. think I had a tackle on either game, so I was just kind of there. But it was just fun, you know. Like it was just it's it's a different it's 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 like times ten of anything that's going on during the regular season, save for the the Labor Day game. The Labor Day game yeah. has a lot of that uh, emotion and you know lots of uh, heart feelings and stuff. But uh, yeah, the Grey Cup was incredible. And the other thing was is that my dad had won two Grey Cups in '68 yeah. and '69, so. Uh, I remember talking to my dad before and then calling him right after and being emotional. And, you know, he was watching the game back in Ottawa. So that was really that. That's one of the things that, you know, I don't think I appreciated it then, but I sure do now, you know, us both being on that trophy. Was Lancaster on those Ottawa teams still or he hit or he had gone to uh, Saskatchewan? He had gone. He left. He was on the 60 Grey Cup team when they won in 1960. I think he was playing defensive back that year. Oh, wow, uh, and yeah. then they, yeah, they moved him over. Actually, they had to make a decision between him and Russ because Ronnie was, you know, and then they right. decided to stick with Russ because he was Canadian. And then yeah. Ronnie left for Saskatchewan and the rest is history. So, uh, but there was definitely an Ottawa connection because I saw Ronnie speak um, in 86, I think. And I was just my first year of college. And I remember introducing myself to him after and my dad telling me, man, he threw for 50,000 yards. You know, nobody's ever thrown that far before, and, you know. Um, so it was a big thrill when I learned that he was going to be our head coach. Cool. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if he remembered me or not, but I sure enjoyed playing under him. So. Now, the, the last loss of the 93 season actually came in September to those Winnipeg Blue Bombers. You mentioned that kind of struggled defending the, the Matt Dunnigan-led offense. He didn't play in the Grey Cup, and you got up to a 17 nothing lead after the first quarter. As a player, personally, I'm a Rough Rider fan. I know what it's like to be leading by 19 in the first quarter and have it <laughs> melt away. Uh, is it hard to kind of keep your emotions down? You know, yeah. there's still three quarters to play, even though you're up 17. And Winnipeg did they did kind of fight back in the second half. Yeah, they did. We, uh, you know, you're talking about in the Grey Cup when we got up. But, yeah, it just seemed like we jumped all over him, you know. And then we uh, – we, um, Recovered, I think we blocked a punt, and then we also recovered a fumble. I mean, it was just like bang, 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 and then before yeah. you knew it, we were we were up. And then it was, 
I just remember thinking we were all sort of saying, listen, don't relax, don't relax. And they started to chip away. It was, uh, I think Sean kicked six field goals. And so it was like we couldn't score a touchdowns, but we were getting points, right? So we were just sort of taking what we, we could get. Uh, but I just remember at the end of the game, Garza threw a really long one, and, and David Williams just barely dropped it. And if he catches that, I'm not sure we're having this conversation today. So, wow. um, yeah. So I mean, even though they didn't have Matt in there, those guys were a veteran group. You know, they had these you know monsters on their O line like Miles Garrell and Chris Walby and uh, Chris Johnstone was their fullback. He was really good, and they had uh, Robert Mims as their. You know, they were just and the linebackers were insane. You know, they ran that three four with. Battle, Jones, West, and Randolph. You know, that was an all-star. Like, those guys, I think, might all four be in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if Rob Randolph's in there, but uh, they just didn't have any weaknesses on defense, right? And so, I, yeah, we didn't take them lightly, that's for sure. So, when we were up, we weren't taking it for granted. We wanted to kind of keep our, our pedal to the metal. And um, I, knew, I do remember late in the game when our offense needed to put a, a drive together, I think Larry Ruck had an interception, and then we just sort of drove the ball until we until the game was won, right? And so, Jack, hats off to Winnipeg for making, uh, you know, making something out of nothing because, you know, they're, they're, it, it sure changed the chemistry of their offense without having Matt in there. Matt just had this swagger about him. Yeah. That you just knew you were in trouble because he could make every throw on the field and he could run and – he was a little bit crazy too. He played with the linebacker mentality. So, uh, you know, he had that impact everywhere he went. You know, people just loved playing for him and hated playing against him. So. I'm sure there's probably a double E sticker or two still in the Calgary Stampeder locker room. But uh, <laughs> how long did that uh, celebration last? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was probably the greatest off. Oh, I remember Dwayne Mandrusiak saying to me, because I actually helped them load all the bags. I was just soaking in the moment because my dad had told me that, you know what, like soak it all mm. up. I was the last one out of there. I helped them load all the bags into the bus. And Dwayne looked at me and he goes, you do realize this is going to be the greatest off season you've ever had. And, and it certainly <laughs> was that before, you know, like we took that great cup everywhere. Trent and I were celebrating one night and we left the great cup unlocked in his car overnight. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy! That know, great cup the has... was like, "Where's the great cup? Where's the great cup?" And so we had to drive it, you know, you know, over to cross town in the morning at seven a.m. to get it to the office because they had a book report oh. that day. So, <laughs> like, yeah. That thing could talk. The stories oh. it would tell. Did you have like a designated day, or was it just? Hey, it's well, free today. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was it. Was yeah, the last, the latter, because um, I remember we ended up getting it, and um, I've had the Grey Cup quite a few times. I've I've eaten Count Chocula out of it. I've, uh, <laughs> That's I've awesome. taken it. Yeah, I remember we took it to Mo's sports bar, sports bar, and. Uh, some girl, and I said, this is the Grey Cup. And they're like, that's not the real Grey Cup. And I'm like, no, we took all this time and effort to create one that looks exactly like, get out of here. Dent it up. From it yet. Yeah. <laughs> You're not getting a drink from it, you know. So that was before everybody was worried about COVID. So. Yeah. Oh, that is, that, that's fantastic. I, I finally, I just kind of want to ask you about what it means to be on the cup with your dad. And there's been some stories from recent years it was one of his great cups in Ottawa where they didn't get rings until very recently. And yeah. recently, I think you just recovered one of his old uniforms. Yeah. Yeah. Some I have his really uniform. Cool man, things quite... happening. Yeah. That's his, that's his uniform right there. Up wow. On the wall, so, wow. Um, yeah. He got, they got watches actually in 69. Yeah. Cause it was a new owner who had purchased the team uh, during the off season between 68 and 69. And, 
Um, and then that kind of didn't really sit well, I think. The quality of the watches wasn't that great. So mm. uh, in a really cool gesture, the surviving sons of the owner, who had long since passed away, uh, for the 50-year anniversary, um, pooled their money and they they bought all the surviving alumni and families of the players that they got rings. So uh, that was a cool gesture. You know, my, my dad, the watch that he had had long since been, you know, you know misplaced or whatever but yeah yeah so that was kind of cool to be able to receive that on behalf of my dad because my dad passed away in 2011 um and then also with this jersey i just got just a random message you know out of the blue on social media where a guy said uh yeah you know my stepdad has a really good collection of jerseys and your dad happens to be among them and i was like what really that's from what year and he said he wasn't sure, but he asked me if I was interested in getting it. And I was like, well, how did you get upon, come upon it, if you don't mind me asking? And he says, well, <laughs> my stepdad was among, was among a few teenage uh, kids that broke into the stadium in uh, Montreal at the Autostad and stole a bunch of jerseys and other stuff from the Ottawa Rough Riders during a game. And my dad's jersey, wow. home jersey, was among them. And as fate would have it, that jersey is the one that he wore his rookie year. So um, wow. it's incredible. Yeah, and I don't have anything of his from when he played because uh, when he got remarried after my mom and dad split up, he was with uh, an unstable woman who uh, <laughs> took all of his stuff and oh, left wow. it out in the Texas sun for six months in a chest, and it all got destroyed. So um, my dad always felt really bad about that because he had all that stuff set aside for me and my sisters you know, yeah. to kind of split up amongst ourselves. So. Uh, it's just really cool to. I had my um, I had a reunion of, of sorts this summer with my sisters, and I had my uh, nephews trying that jersey on, and that was really cool. And so it's hanging up in my son's room. My youngest son's. He's gonna. I'm gonna get a Dropbox and put it in there, and maybe put it cool. in there with a picture of him wearing the jersey. So very cool keepsake. It's one of my most treasured uh, items for sure. You still call Edmonton home? Uh, when did you realize it was gonna be home for good? <laughs> um. Well, you know, my, my ex-wife and I lived here while I was playing. And then when we split up in 2000, because she didn't like the Edmonton winters and she didn't like me either. So, uh, <laughs> so she went back home, but uh, I just realized that, you know, my dad said something to me, you know, when I first started playing is that uh, Edmonton is a, it's a small town disguised as the city. And he said, if you are willing to put in the work and do things and be, you know, active and visible and raise your profile in the community, he said that community will take care of you. And that's exactly what happened, you know. Uh, every job I've ever had in this community um, has been through word of mouth. You know, I've never really, it just seems like people here just take care of their own. And uh, it's just an amazing, you know, very altruistic uh, volunteer oriented society. And, the people of salt of the earth. And that's the other thing I always really liked about Edmonton in, in comparison to Calgary is that the, there is a blue collar mentality, lunch pail. Everybody's got to look out for each other type of mentality, whereas Calgary is a little bit more of a, you know, more elitist and, you know, corporate, whereas here we're more, you know, approachable and, you know, people just kind of get it, you know, in terms of like when tough, when times are tough, we got to count on each other, right? We can't be individuals, you know, as much as, as everybody seems to be, you know, pertinent to these days, you know, with all the crazy stuff going on in the world, Edmonton's one of those places where you just seems like people will help each other out when, when times are tough, you know, like today's that anniversary of that terrible tornado that happened, you know, and, and, and just yeah. remember how the community rallied around each other after that, you know, you don't see that in too many places, but uh, 
this is certainly one of them. Yeah, that's uh, where the City of Champions name came from. I, I, fig- I figure I better get a Calgary guy on the show to uh, kind of present the op- opposing view to balance yeah. things out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little bit. But, hey, uh, thanks so much for coming on uh, and uh, talking about that 1993 season, all the memories and stories about uh, that year and winning that Grey Cup. Uh, it's been lots of fun having you on the show, so thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. It's awesome. And I just as a postscript, whenever I see those Calgary guys like Bruce Carpenter and and Stu Laird, I mean, it's all love. You know, like we have nothing yeah. but just smiles. And and they were an incredible bunch. Like iron sharpens iron, right? Like we yeah. were really hard on each other for a long time. But whenever we see each other now, it's just respect. And, you know, it's uh, we were lucky. I consider myself fortunate to have been alive at that point in time to get to play Doug Foody, to get to to see Wally Bono, you know, the greatest head coach, one of them, if not the greatest great head coaches. And, you know, it was just an exciting year in the CFL, and I'd love to see it get back to that eventually. Thanks for listening. Find more great shows like this at CF Pod Network on Twitter.